Did you know that on our website, KLWN.com, as well as our sister stations, 1059kissfm.com, bull929.com, we have a program called Hometown Deals. So you click the tab, and it takes you to a magical place where gift cards are 50% off. We have handfuls of different restaurants and places that you can go to that you can get a 50% off gift card too. So just go to the website, click Hometown Deals, and you'll see some of those gift cards for 50% off. If you're a business and interested in being part of this as well and getting featured ads at no cash price and just gift card cost, shoot us an email, djohnson at gpmnow.com. All right, we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on KLWN. We're going to be joined by Michael Swain in about 35 minutes. Talk some recruiting, KU football with Michael from Fog.net. We've got the KU women's basketball coach, Big 12 Coach of the Year. Brandon Schneider going to join us at the top of the 5 o'clock hour at 5.05. We've got some uh, trivia classics to get to, some Royals stuff, and some uh, pretty notable comments by George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner at Pac-12 Media Days earlier today. But how about this? We're five weeks away, exactly today, five weeks out from the KU football season opener against Tennessee Tech. Exciting. Five weeks. That that sounds really, really short. And this is actually the last week of of shows, really, before camp starts for KU football. Starts up next Tuesday. They're going to have a bunch of media availabilities coming up between Tuesday and on with all the different practices that they have. We're going to hear from a bunch of the different coaches and players, and we'll bring you that audio, as always, here on RCST, uh, here on KLWN. And... It'll be interesting to kind of track some of the position battles. I'll, I'll ask Michael what's the position battle that maybe he's most intrigued by. I, I'm curious to see how the depth on the offensive line works out. We think we know probably four of the starters on the offensive line. I, I feel pretty confident maybe even we know all five, but who are going to develop at those depth spots. And then the linebacker spots. You bring in four transfers, three from other Division One schools. You have some guys returning to a unit that struggled overall. Who wins out at those spots? I think the secondary in general is is kind of a question. Obviously, we know Kenny Logan will be at one of those spots. Um, I think that you would assume a couple of the transfers you you bring in from the Big Ten, like Marvin Grant and Kalon Gervin, should have a sizable role. Will they be starters? Who would be the other corner? Right? There's some uh, big competitions happening there. And then, honestly, one of the ones I'm really interested by is is low key kind of the the backup quarterback spot. I think that. Jason Bean has a huge edge there, and you know I I kind of I I know that they've mentioned that Jalen Daniels technically not the starting quarterback, and that actually it would be a competition for the number one. But I feel like that's kind of been like a wink, wink, nod, nod type of thing where Jalen Daniels probably going to be QB one. You assume Jason Bean going to be QB two, and I I feel confident if Jason Bean is your your second QB that you like that QB room there. But there's been a lot of good talk about Ethan Vasco this young true freshman coming into the program. So if that's all for real, could it be that for real that he ends up being the backup quarterback? And that would be rather telling if that were to be the case. Obviously, whoever steps up at receiver, that's an interesting position battle as well. So that'll be on the lookout for next week. But again, five weeks away from the start of the KU football season. We've been doing this and and going into some specific numbers with uh, being five weeks away. The first is five is the number of tackles for loss that Rich Miller and Gavin Potter both had last season, which is tied for the lead among returners in tackle for loss. Kyron Johnson was your leader in tackles for loss. He's obviously gone. So Rich Miller and Gavin Potter are at the top of that list. And I've talked a lot about the tackle for loss numbers over the course of some of our position previews, which we'll finish out coming up next week. And a big reason why is because 
like tackle for loss numbers are very indicative of of what can happen on a drive. Uh, stadium, which is like a you know college athletics or, or just a I don't know a media company that that covers a bunch of different sports and everything. They did a, an article on this, and there have been other articles done kind of on this this same topic. This was back in 2019, and they looked at a specific week. It was like week two of the 2019 season um, of games involving top 25 teams. So, like, not an ultra-giant sample, but overall, when you add them all up together, it was a sample size of more than 500 drives. And, again, there's been other, like, kind of articles backing up this same type of thing, maybe with slightly different numbers because the sample size is different, but with the same kind of end theme or end statement here. And drives where a defense gets a tackle for loss – the numbers of drives that end up not scoring, it, it just skyrockets up. And so those are important to avoid on offense. They're important to get defensively. We talked about this earlier that KU, over the course of last season, were out TFL'd essentially. It was like 69 to 40 or something like that. But over the last three weeks of the season, KU out-tackled for loss between Texas, TCU, and West Virginia 17 to 12. And sure enough, Kansas won a Big 12 game, and they very easily could have won the other two. You see the turnaround when you have that difference on the line of scrimmage. But here's that that article from Stadium I'm talking about where it looked at that specific week. So in drives where an offense has no sacks, penalties, tackles for loss, fumble, uh, interception, um, or a three and out on the drive, they score on 73% of the time. And it it goes down. If you have no sacks, penalties, or tackles for loss on the drive, they only score on 49% of the drive. And the points per drive goes from 4.6 to 3.2. If you just go down to one or more tackle for loss allowed on the drive, offenses score just 28.1% of the time and average just 1.5 points per drive. And again, like if you allow a sack and a pen, commit a penalty and a tackle for loss, like it goes down even more, right? So the more things you do, the worse it gets. But let's just look at that. On drives where an offense commits, you know, if we just look at the uh, no sacks, penalties, or tackle for loss, offenses are scoring about 50% of the time. If you just commit one tackle for loss, so to go from no sacks, penalties, or tackle for loss to just committing one tackle for loss on the drive, it basically cuts their odds in half that they are going to score points. And it cuts the points per drive by more than half of what they're going to get. So there is a vast importance on creating chaos, on creating tackles for loss. KU didn't have a ton of them last season. Now the guys you return in Rich Miller and Gavin Potter, like there's no guarantee either of those are going to start. But you lose Kyron Johnson, who was the best at it on the team last season. You're going to have to find other players who create that. I think you would like to think that Lonnie Phelps can be that guy. I think that Caleb Sampson can kind of be that guy, but it's a little tougher when you're an interior defensive lineman to consistently make big tackle for loss numbers. A lot of times you're just kind of taking up blockers to allow one of your linebackers to shoot through and make that play, which example of Rich Miller and Gavin Potter, who struggled last season but still wound up tied second on the team in tackles for loss. So if if KU can hit those numbers hard and get improvement there like that 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 means so much just creating that stuff and it's not a guarantee that the drive is going to go well right that's just a percentage play but if you look at that over the course of time because again there are other studies on this type of stuff I, I think there are uh, like people are starting to to grade out and and check mark of stops is what they call them which are like plays where you get zero or, or negative yards on a play and how drives you know, continue to stall when that ends up being the case, KU has to be more disruptive on the defensive side of the ball. The next number, plus five, is the turnover differential that KU had over the last three weeks of the season. And again, I would deem that a very successful stretch for KU. You won a game after being just one and one and eight over the first nine weeks, and you very easily could have won the other two. I get it. No moral victories. We've heard that comment from Lance Leipold. Um, and that's a very agreeable statement and everything. But from where they were last year, there were more moral victories. There just were. Like, you know, you, you like your coach and your players and, and the expectations to not be moral victories. But you should also understand that at least from, 
I don't know, where I'm sitting, like, there has to be some sort of moral victories when you're improving on a program from where it was. Nonetheless, uh, the Texas game accounted for a majority of that. Kansas was plus four in the Texas game. But still, you were plus one in the other two games. So you would gladly take that through Big 12 play. Now, they're actually minus two through the other nine games. So it's not like this was a year where they were just like minus 10 in the other nine games and were good over those last three weeks and got lucky and everything. They actually did a pretty good job of taking care of the ball. They just didn't force a ton of turnovers last year. And a big part of that, too, like this goes back in line with the first thing about getting tackles for loss. The more chaotic plays you make, the more tackles for loss, the more sacks that you get, the more turnovers you're going to create, right? It's going to be, if you get a tackle for loss, a lot of times that comes in a more susceptible area to strip the ball away from a running back. If you get a sack, of course, it's easier to strip sack a quarterback than when he's taken off past the line of scrimmage and running. Or it's not even the sacks and tackle for loss, but in theory, if you're good at those things, then you should be getting a lot of other plays where you don't quite get the sack or tackle for loss, but you get darn close and it forces the quarterback to hurry up the play and maybe force a pass that he wasn't going to before, and that can lead to an interception. So these things are kind of uh, in synergy with each other, but the big key overall with the turnover mark, I think, for KU is just don't be a total loss here. They were, like I said, obviously actually pretty solid throughout the year and not getting dominated in turnovers outside of maybe a few spots here or there. Obviously, you hope that you can have a season like you did in, I think it was 2018, when KU was like one of the top two or three teams in in turnover margin. Um, They had like a billion of them in the Rutgers game alone to kind of bolster that mark. If, If you're more solid in other ways and you have a season like that in turnovers, like, yes, that would lead to some profitable games for KU this year. But I think just overall, we've seen too many years where They've been bad, and they've taken themselves out of games with turnovers. Last year, I think, was a good example. Like There were a lot of areas that KU struggled and had issues. Turnovers really wasn't one of them, and that allowed you to win. Maybe the turnover luck started going your way, or maybe you were more even, like you were plus one in the last two games. Then all of a sudden, you were a lot more competitive because you could rely on your other things and not have to not just make up in certain talent deficiencies, but also have to make up in the turnover game. So overall, if KU takes care of the ball uh, with their style of play, which I think kind of benefits into that, like it gives you a chance to, to be competitive. You're going to play a, a lower possession, lower mistake type of game, make less mistakes. And over the last three weeks, they did just that and were plus five in turnovers. But I, I think you see the flip side of that, right? Uh, the one game where you did have some of those turnover issues, you had a couple red zone interceptions, from Jalen Daniels, who was really good over the last three weeks, but those two big mistakes, you lose a six-point game to West Virginia, you could easily say if if he doesn't make one of those or if he doesn't make both, Kansas probably wins the game. So they're playing on a very fine margin of error. You have to avoid turnovers if you're any team, but especially if you're Kansas. The last number for five, it is the amount of wins that takes to go to a bowl game if there are not enough eligible teams and you have the best APR score. We've seen a handful of other five and seven teams make it to a bowl game. They've had the best APR score. I think Nebraska might have done it a couple years ago. I think Mississippi State did it. There have been other teams that have done it. Um, I looked, and and I don't know if the APR score is based off something that's that's ongoing that year. I, I know it has to do with like certain graduation rates, so I don't believe it does. There was an article that came out earlier this summer. It was back in like July with APR scores, and KU ranked just eighth among the 10 Big 12 schools in APR scores, and they were just 86th in the country. So, unfortunately, that probably means that a 5-7 and seven Kansas would not have the APR scores to get them to go bowling. So, get to six and uh, secure it from there. That's the job. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. We're going to talk about uh, what George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner said at Pac-12 Media Days earlier today, Michael Swain is going to join us in a little over 20 minutes. This is RCST. We are brought to you by Homefield Apparel. Homefield, a premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis, has incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs because they dig through the archives 
of your school to find unique logos, mascots, and moments. The Kansas Collection has 14 pieces of apparel, including T-shirts, hoodies, crewnecks, and they are some of the most comfortable things that you will wear. Plus, they look really cool. And they just released, well, not just, but after the national championship, they released a national championship shirt. Use the code Rock Chalk Sports Talk. That's Rock Chalk Sports Talk, all one word, and you'll get 15%, 15% off your first order. That's right. Code Rock Chalk Sports Talk, all one word, for 15% off with home field apparel on your first order. Some Royals news. We'll get to some more Royals coming up in the 5 o'clock hour after Brady Singer had a really strong performance yesterday. But Salvador Perez is back in the lineup for the Royals. Emmanuel Rivera was optioned down. Always good to see Perez coming up, and they traded away Andrew Benintendi. Part of me wonders if the timeline there, you know, why trade him two days ago as opposed to waiting till the deadline till the very end. And maybe part of it was they knew Salvador Perez was going to be back soon, and they wanted to see, you know, they wanted to have more corner outfield spots available so that they could play MJ Melendez and Nick Prado along with Vinny Pascantino and, and Salvador Perez when he was back. But Perez is going to be back, so this is going to be a more full lineup for the Royals and going to be interested to see how they kind of utilize all those different guys that a lot of them overlap in their different positioning. It was Pac-12 media days earlier today. I don't know if they continue on or, or keep going on or what. I'm pretty sure it's on like the Pac-12 network, which is funny on its own because – like the Big 12 Media Days is on, you know, ESPN Plus with Big 12 Now and everything. And obviously there's other ways like you can attend it or, or whatever. But the fact that it's on Pac-12 Network for their Media Days where the idea is to, you know, create, I don't know, headlines about the conference, create interest about the conference and uh, make national headlines or whatever. And it's on a TV channel that literally nobody gets. I mean, seriously, if you have Pac-12 Network, you are like, I mean, it's it's not like a valuable, ultra-valuable entity or anything, but it is something where it is very rare. You know, it's like finding a uh, really rare penny or something. Like maybe you'll find a coin collector who values it a lot. I just view it as a penny, but, you know, that's cool. It's a rare penny and everything. Nonetheless, uh, George Klyovkov, the commissioner of the Pac-12, had some uh, choice words for the Big 12, which you can sort of understand. It seems as if the Big 12 has gone on the offensive here, but you don't normally hear, you know, guys who are in those positions speak out in this way. Usually you hear it more cordial, and I actually did appreciate that he was honest in this way and, and that we we do maybe get to this point. And I appreciated that Brett Yormark, basically, he was like, yeah, we're open for business. And that was one of the things that George Klavkov did not like. Here uh, is George Klyovkov talking about that comment from Brett Yormark. With respect to the Big 12 being open for business, uh, I appreciate that. We haven't decided if we're going shopping there yet or not. So he goes, with regards to them being open for business, I have not decided if we're shopping there or not. So basically saying, yeah, you may want some of us, but guess what? We're not interested in joining. We're actually in the better position. We're the conference that if we wanted to, we could poach you. You know, we could we could bring on your teams and to like it, it's so sassy too from him because it's not just that. It's him saying, you know, we haven't decided if, if we want to go shopping in your conference uh, because your teams aren't good enough for us. So I don't know. We, we might not even want you. It's like, OK, I understand if, if you're mad about those comments and if you want to be defensive and everything, but to go a step further and to make it like, yeah, no, we would be like you should be the ones trying to join us is just absolutely remarkable. Um, and uh, it's also that what's kind of funny here and ironic is that he's taken out like all this anger and frustration with the big 12 and like, didn't really make mention of the big 10 who he was, you know, the big 10 is at fault of all this, right? The big 10 is the one that, Took away USC and UCLA. I saw the the one, uh, the, there's a funny meme where it's like Eric Andre and he, he shoots someone and then he turns around and say, why would so-and-so do this? And, and it's like somebody that, you know, was not at fault. So he shoots the, 
he's in the first meme. He's uh, representing. This is this is horrible radio, but um, he's representing the uh, Big Ten, and he's shooting the Pac-12. The Pac-12 is now dead. And then in the second part of the meme, he goes, "Why would the Big 12 do this?" <laughs> it's like, what? Why are you blaming the Big 12 for all this? Just kind of odd. Uh, here was another comment though by Klyovkov again, kind of scolding the Big 12 in in saying that they're throwing grenades at the conference. I've been spending four weeks trying to defend against grenades that have been lobbed in from every corner of the Big 12, trying to destabilize our remaining conference. And I understand why they're doing it. When you look at the relative media value between the two conferences, I get it. I get why they're scared. I get why they're trying to destabilize us. But I was just tired of that. And yeah, that's probably not the most collegial thing I've ever said. I will say those comments and, and all these comments and everything, like it's just going to make the Big 12 even more feisty. And to be honest, like if you're some of these Pac-12 universities, do you look at those comments and go, yeah, this is a guy I'm really excited that's going to be leading us into the next wave because you got kind of a, a little man syndrome there going on, right? Um, he also had an interesting comment later on, which I do want to at least just, just mention here, speculated that treating student athletes as employees could lead to a draft system in which players don't get to pick which school they attend and lose their ability to transfer. They could also be traded or fired for poor performance. All right, chill out, dude. Uh, But anyway, back to the comments with the Big 12. That is interesting because, and it's not surprising, that the Big 12 or in certain circles would be trying to destabilize the Pac-12 and essentially be, you know, it's like when you were a kid and you had a loose tooth and and you're trying to get it out, but you, you know sometimes you would just yank it out or I, I don't know if anybody ever did like the the door trick with the string. I never did, but you'd see it on like TV shows and stuff where you tie your tooth to a string and attach it to the door, and then somebody opens the door and it just rips right out clean and everything. Um, but if you don't do that, like a lot of times when you're getting the tooth out, you're like kind of wiggling it around and and you, you just keep wiggling it and you're playing around with it in your mouth and everything and. Uh, eventually, it just you know comes out uh, super you know easy and and everything. And the tooth's out. That's kind of like what the Big Twelve is doing by if if you have something where like you see these reports from Dennis Dodd about you know they're looking into the the Pac twelve and stuff like that could just be a Big Twelve source who is leaking something to one of these journalists to basically try to cause public frenzy. And then maybe a different Pac-12 school is like, oh, man, if they're going to leave, we better leave now. Like, hey, Big 12, let's come calling. So, like, that would be kind of the idea there and the grenades that he's talking about. I don't doubt that that's happening. Uh, I, I guarantee it is, in fact. Um, but it's just kind of interesting because it, like, this this doesn't, this doesn't seem like a, a position of power. This doesn't seem like a position that you would be in if you were super confident in where things are going. And I guess that's the ultimate question here. Like, is this indicative that the Pac-12 is in a better spot than we'd think, that they truly are in uniformity with each other and that this is going to unite them against a common enemy, the Big 12, and that the commissioner is is kind of spearheading this and that, you know, this is putting them to a point where they're like, no, we're better together. Um, and by the way, the, the part in there where he talks about like, you know, and based on their media values, it's like, dude, what are you talking about? The Big 12 is and has been making more money than the Pac-12. And yes, the Big 12 is is losing a big amount with Texas and Oklahoma, but you're losing 40% of your revenue with USC and UCLA. And the projections that have come out, even once Texas and Oklahoma depart versus the Pac-12, is tens of millions of dollars that the Big 12 schools are going to be making off the media rights than the Pac-12. So I don't understand why he's acting from this standpoint of like, the Pac-12 media rights are just so much better than the Big 12. But nonetheless, if this is something that unifies the Pac-12 together and makes them less likely to leave because they do have kind of that common enemy there, does that mean the Pac-12 is actually in a better spot than we'd think here? Also, the counter to that is what do you expect the guy who is literally the commissioner of the conference to say. He's not going to come out and be like, well, we're, we're really struggling here. Uh, we're, we're fending off requests from the Big 12 and from the ACC and the Big 10, and I don't know if we're going to be a conference for much longer. We're trying our darndest. No, of course he's not going to say that. Of course he has to take 
this stance uh, to a certain standpoint. You know, you expect him to be defensive and to support that. I didn't expect maybe those comments to come out. Um, but you're talking about, again, back to the idea that he is the commissioner of the conference. If the conference implodes, if the Pac-12 is no more, he literally loses his job. His job no longer exists. So, of course, of course he's going to be on the defensive and do everything in his power to try and position the Pac-12 into a spot of confidence, togetherness, and power. He is the leader of the organization. How can the other schools in the conference, even if the other schools aren't confident in the leadership or in where the Pac-12 is going or in not leaving the Big 12, if the leader of the conference and George Klyovkov is not, then certainly the schools wouldn't as well. So, of course, he has to take that angle. But it just kind of remains to be seen if all the conference members feel that same way. Because, again, all it takes is one or two more dominoes to fall in the Pac-12, and the rest could be scattered around. So it's all good and well that they're together now. And this was the same case for the Big 12, and the Big 12 ended up sticking together, and they added teams, and it seems to be on more solid footing now. Maybe that same thing will happen with the Pac-12 here. Like I said, maybe this unifies them. But the other side to this is that it's more smoke and not really a position of confidence, and this is just kind of something that's being feigned. This is something that is being forced by George Klyovkov. I think Matt Tate termed it a good way, like, is this just desperation? He wrote a piece in that in the K, at uh, KUSports.com. Like, is this just desperation? Is this a last call uh, from the Pac-12? Is this just you know, one man thinking they're in a good position, but some of the schools not necessarily agreeing. I don't really have the answer to that, but this was certainly an interesting development that happened at Pac-12 Media Days today. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Maybe we'll ask Michael Swain what he thinks about those comments. We also want to talk some recruiting, both football and basketball recruiting, with Michael on the other side and some other KU football talk. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLW on Michael Swain of Fog.net next. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk, joined now by Michael Swain of Fog.net. And we were just talking about the uh, comments that were made by George Klyovkov at Pac-12 Media Days earlier today and certainly had some shots fired for the Big 12. You don't always see that from the, uh, I guess, higher-ups of athletic programs, that's for sure. What did you kind of make of the comments? Did you view it more as a position of unity for the Pac-12, that they're unified against the Big 12, or did you almost view it as more of George Klyovkov just kind of making his last stand? I think the latter point is probably what I agree with more. It seemed like someone that was desperate and is getting towards the point of, you know, taking it out publicly, where I think you could sense frustration with maybe some of the questions that he got asked. You'd sense that that maybe fed up is the right word with some of this stuff. And I think that to some degree, let it get the better of him when he's talking to the media and in this press conference setting, it kind of snapped. And I think you saw that with some of the comments. I think you compare it to every other commissioner that's talked, right? The ACC commissioner, right? You know, he didn't say anything like this. And the ACC is in a similar precarious position where they don't really know long-term, are they a viable conference? If, for example, one of those Miamis, you know, Clemsons, if they end up leaving, the ACC is in trouble too, but he didn't handle it like that. And, of course, um, you know, the Big 12 is in a different spot in terms of not really being the school or the, the conference that could have programs poached. But, you know, of course, there was the open for business comment made as well. So I thought this was just a really interesting way to handle this whole thing where you come out and kind of take digs and take shots at, the other conferences, most likely or most notably the Big 12, instead of going after the conference that took your schools, right, in the Big 10 that grabbed UCLA and USC, no, let's go after the, the Big 12 and, and try and make them look bad. So I thought it was a, a move of desperation from the Pac-12 commissioner for sure. Yeah, I definitely wonder what, like, like for instance, if you're, if you're the athletic director, you're the president of Stanford or something, like, I, I don't envision they viewed that as a uh, positive thing that happened, but... I don't know. Maybe we'll get more kind of mudslinging between the two conferences, which honestly I'm kind of here for Ooh. because it's entertaining uh, at the very least. I do want to talk some recruiting with you, though. Um, KU mm -hmm. landed a commit this week, Blake Harold. He is a defensive lineman from Iowa for the class of 2023. What are the Jayhawks getting in this kid? Yeah, I think a developmental prospect for sure is where you have to start with this, but I think from a big-picture sense, this is the type of player that I think Kansas needs to go out and get. 
right? You're not going to be able to go win a lot of head-on-head power five battles for really good defensive linemen because really good defensive linemen, just like the offensive line, are really coveted. So you're going to have to go to places that maybe some other schools aren't going to look. And that's exactly what KU did here, going to Iowa and getting a kid that Iowa State and Iowa really didn't look at. And certainly seems like he has the frame. I mean, I saw him at KU football's camp, and he showed up there around 245 pounds, and he did not look anything like that. You know, he looked like one of those 235-pound guys, and I think that shows you the type of frame he has. And he's one of these guys that you look at what he weighed as the start of high school, Six foot three, 180 pounds. And three years later, going into his senior season, he's six foot four, 245 pounds. Now, that's without ever doing a full blown weightlifting routine. That's while playing multiple sports. You know, he played basketball for a long time. And so you can really project to what he could look like when he gets to Kansas under Matt Gildersleeve and when that strength and conditioning staff gets multiple years with him, where he's going to end up being one of those defensive tackles where he's six foot four, 290 maybe even 300 pounds. It's just one of these guys that he's not going to come in and play year one. He's going to need time to be in the weight room, but he projects to play the three technique defensive tackle spot. And it's just the type of player that I think KU needs to go out and get as they look to rebuild this defensive line group that has become really old over the last two, three seasons. From a bigger picture of looking at this in terms of that kind of wider scope view with the class of 2023 is, is kind of the center focus here. How do you kind of see this impacting that in, in terms of like scholarship allotment to positions or amount of high schoolers they bring in or, or just kind of from that overall view of the class of 2023? Yeah, so I think they're probably about the halfway point of this class. You know, you've got seven guys committed right now. So you're probably full at wide receiver. Um, you know, you've got your three guys. They all committed there in June. Defensive line-wise, you know, KU's kind of in a talent acquisition mode. You know, they've got a lot of defensive linemen they're going to leave after this year. So, they're going to need to replenish there. So I think you'll see more defensive linemen come in from the high school ranks. They'll probably go after a portal defensive tackle just because they lose four or five defensive tackles after this year. So you're at the halfway point now. And I think, you know, obviously quarterback is going to be an interesting thing to see. Does KU take a quarterback in this class, right? They had Casey Wiseman um, come for a visit in June and nothing's really happened there. And so you look at now, okay, you've got Jalen Daniels, who's going to be around for a long time and, you know, Ben Easters and Ethan Vasco as well, does the staff decide, all right, you want to what? let's go take a quarterback in 2024, not take one in 2023, and roll the guys we have. So I think for me the quarterback question is interesting heading into kind of the fall. Do they decide to just not take one? And then I think offensive line right now, for me, if you're going to, you know, rank your needs for a class, offensive line is the big one right now where you look no offensive lineman committed, they just offered Mason Goldman earlier this week, who was at one of KU's camps. KU's seen him multiple times now. And so maybe he pops for KU. We'll have to see kind of how things play out before the start of the senior season. But I look at offensive line kind of being one of the big question marks now for this high school class. But in terms of the overall numbers, you're kind of at the halfway point now of who they're going to take. Switching over to the basketball side of things for recruiting, news came last weekend about Bill Self and Curtis Townsend not being out during the July recruiting period based on some visits and, and guys who have gotten offers or, or interest, it doesn't really seem to be slowing down their process of recruiting too much. What's kind of your view on, on how that may be affecting recruiting if it is in any way? I think it sounds worse than it is. People that don't follow recruiting will see that and it'll sound bad. And it, in reality, it really isn't. It took until, the last week of July when this has been going on for June and July for it to be reported on. And I think that shows that it's not necessarily the most important thing. Now, what would be bad for recruiting is if Bill Self and Curtis Townsend could not contact recruits at all. But my understanding is that's not the case. They are able to talk to recruits still. It's just that they weren't on the road for this um, summer kind of evaluation periods. And I think too, it's, you know, someone on our message board, on the VIP board, posted a funny comment saying this is like David Beatty announcing a, a bull ban for KU. Like, this is just not a very good high school class in the class of 2023, and there are not a lot of guys that KU is going to be recruiting very, very hard. So it kind of makes sense that if you're going to try and get out ahead of some of these punishments or try and figure something out, that you do it now when there's a class that there aren't really a ton of guys that you're interested in seeing in person. So 
I think you look at the class, you know, the numbers wise, right? You're, you're guaranteed you're going to lose Cam Martin. You can pretty much guarantee you're going to lose Jalen Wilson as well. Outside of that, you're guaranteed that everyone else will have eligibility remaining. So you're talking about two spots. So they can be picky. They can pick and choose of who they want to take. They've had three guys coming for visits, Mikey Williams, Taysom Chapman, and Chris Johnson. Um, of course, you can also note that, you know, Taysom Chapman's recruited by Norm Roberts, who, of course, was on the road in June and July. And Chris Johnson's recruited by Jeremy Case, who was also on the road in June and July. So, again, the way that KU did this, I think, is very tactical. And I think it was pretty smart, honestly, that this is the way that they decided to handle it because it's not going to have a drastic impact. Whereas maybe if this is a football program we're talking about, maybe it'd have a bigger impact with those evaluations. So where does this put them in the most important recruit of all, Bronny James? How does that affect that? Uh, I'm just joking. I don't I'm see joking. the no. Hold on, hold on. I don't see the son of LeBron James, Nike God, going to an Indian school. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, <laughs> I, I do want that would be kind of funny if he did, and then LeBron was just like, "Sorry, I'm I'm getting rid of uh, Nike. I got to transfer over." Um, anyway, uh, KU football camp begins next week, starts up on Tuesday. Is there a position battle that maybe you're most interested by in the upcoming camp? I love like linebacker for me. That's the one that I continue to go back to, and not because it's a position battle that I'm worried about. It's a position battle I'm legitimately excited to watch. Like, you look at what happened to the linebacker room over the course of the offseason, where you go from last year, the linebackers being probably the soft spot on defense, to all of a sudden you return the guys that play the most snaps, right, in Gavin Potter and Rich Miller, and then you all of a sudden go out and add a high-ceiling linebacker in Craig Young. You add a veteran, experienced guy in Eric Gilliard, and then you go and get some like Lorenzo McCaskill, who should be able to come in and step in and start from day one. And so all of a sudden you look at that linebacker room, and you go from last year where you had really two guys you kind of trusted, right, in Miller and Potter, to all of a sudden this year you've got kind of six guys that you feel like you can trust with those three incoming transfers, you know, Gavin Potter, Rich Miller, and then Tywin Berryhill, who played a lot last year, but really took a step forward in spring football. And so you look at that room as a whole, I'm really interested to see who starts because I don't think that that's one of those positions where it's set in stone right now. I think there are a lot of positions that you can look at and have a really good idea of who's going to start where. But I think linebacker is just a huge question and not in a bad way. It's just going to be a pure competition to see who – gets a starting job, but also linebacker is one of those spots where there's going to be rotation over the course of a game so that those guys don't have to play so many snaps. And so those guys can be fresh in the second halves of games. And so I'm really interested to watch that, really interested to see how Craig Young fits into it all just because he's the type of guy that KU just hasn't had, uh, whether it be at linebacker or just on defense in general, just a freak athlete, the type of guy that belonged at Iowa State and belong- or Ohio State and belonged on the field there but wanted to play more. And now he will most likely get the chance to do that at KU. So really interested to see what he does. But for me, linebacker, really, really excited to watch that one. Yeah, I agree. Um, there's just there's so much there between who's going to start, who's going to be the best guy, who's going to, you know, you have certain guys who maybe they're better used in specific roles. That It's going to be very interesting to me uh, to see what happens there. Is, is there a player that hasn't been on campus yet that you're most excited to, to kind of learn more about or, or hear about or, or see how they play against uh, some of the other KU competition. Let's see. I got two for you. I think Marvin Grant, obviously really interested to see where he fits into this. Kenny Logan at Big 12 Media Days talked about not wanting to have as many tackles this year. And, of course, I think the linebacker play is going to help that. But I also look at someone like Marvin Grant, who was more of a box safety at Purdue and was very productive. If he's the one that's now going to play some of that box safety, maybe Kenny Logan plays further off the ball, deeper down the field as more of a, you know, a single high safety, you know, however you want to think about it coverage wise. I'm really interested to see how Marvin Grant fits in. And then I think for me, Lorenzo McCaskill still, I'm just so fascinated by just him being a one and done player him having the experience that he has and just the size that he brings really want to get a good look at him in person because you see some of those photos that come out from his visit and he just looks jacked and it's a different type of jacked than some of the other key linebackers. Like it, it's just a different level of physicality. So I think those are two that I'm really excited to see offensively Douglas a million really interested to see where he fits in because 
wide receiver, I think for me, offensively is still kind of a question mark outside of offensive line depth. And is he going to win the starting job? You know, I've heard that there are some people around the program that feel like a million is maybe has the most talent of anybody in the room, but he hasn't really played a ton of football yet. So how does he adapt and how does he fit into kind of the, the reps and the number of catches and targets he's going to get? So those are some names I probably have my eye on. As far as guys who are returning who, you know, maybe had solid seasons but not like all Big 12 or, or great seasons or anything, do you have a favorite breakout player potentially? Give me – oh, that's tough. That's um, Armaj Reed Adams, really interested yeah. to see how he does. You know, he didn't play a bunch last year, but I think you look at him and what he brings to the guard spot, right? You had Malik Clark who played a lot of football for KU over the course of his time in Lawrence, but he, at, towards the end of his career just really couldn't stay healthy. And you look at someone like Armaj Reed Adams who has dropped 15 pounds this offseason, looks – cutter than I could even imagine an offensive line could look. Um, I tweeted out yesterday, if you go to my Twitter account, um, it's on there. There's a photo of him, and he just looks shredded. So he's going to start somewhere on the offensive line, most likely one of the guard spots. And I think he looks great. Really interesting how he does. Um, on defense, I just Gavin Potter just fascinates me as a human being. Um, really interesting to see how he does. With the full offseason, getting to learn the scheme more, how does he fit in to the role Right, because you have experience there. Is he going to play some of the inside linebackers? Is he going to play outside linebacker? Like, I think he could be someone that could have a really good season just because now he doesn't have to think as much and he can just play naturally and let things flow because I think he has the talent. Just at times, I think the mental side of things was a step behind. Yeah, I like that one. Uh, Bryce Cable, do Luke Grimm, um, I don't know, Caleb Sampson. Those are all ones that, that I'm interested by as well. Okay, I've got, I've got a fun exercise that I want to do with you here. Um, this is going to be kind of a rapid-fire draft between the two of us, so no need to complicate it with Snake. We're just going to go back and forth if you're game to do this. And what we're yeah. going to do here is I'll give you the first pick and then me and then so on back and forth and everything. We're going to draft most likely wins for KU. Does this work for you? Okay, let's do it. <laughs> and we'll see at the end of the season who ends up with the most wins on their half of things. So I will, get, I will give you the first pick. Who is KU's most likely win? Uh, I'll take Oklahoma. No, I'm joking. Tennessee Tech. I was going to say, whoa. Okay, yeah, Tennessee <laughs> Tech, that's the obvious one. So I have the number two, and then it'll go back to you. Uh, I'm going to take Duke at home. I will take West Virginia away. Okay. Um, quick question. If KU starts, we were kind of doing a, a fantasy with, with your 24-7 sports uh, co-worker Kevin Flaherty on Tuesday and, and – he kind of got me all hyped up about the the weird idea of them starting four and Do you think if they started four and they'd be receiving oh, votes in the AP poll? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. All right. So you got at West Virginia. Uh, my next one. I'm going to take TCU at home. They've uh, played TCU close. Okay. I will take Texas Tech away. Okay. That would have been my next one. Let's see. Um, so who we got? There's still Iowa State at home. There's they have struggled versus Iowa State, except for that one year down mm -hmm. in Ames. Uh, at Houston, Texas, who they've obviously played well against. I don't know. I don't think K State is like just absolutely superiorly athletically talented, but they've beat the brakes off KU. I'll take uh, Iowa State at home. I'll take K State away. I think that you look at that last game. KU got better every game last year. I think that could be one that KU wins. Okay. Um, now I'm between the two Texas ones. I'm going to go with at Houston. Just because I, even though like they were picked mm. to win the AAC, they're going to be really good. There still is that. like like This is kind of how I felt with the Coastal Carolina game. Even though Coastal was like a top 25 team, athletically in a lot of ways, it's not like you know they just had a, a superior different athlete than KU necessarily had in terms of like the recruiting base. So I guess I'll go at Houston. Okay, uh, I'll take Oklahoma State at home. Ooh, even over Texas. Are you high on the Longhorns? Yeah. Uh, I think Texas is going to boat race KU. I think that's one <laughs> of those games where they have that circled and that's not going to be close. Yeah, I can definitely see that. They're going to have that extra motivation this year. Because, I mean, yep. the first time they beat Kansas in 16, it was like weird game. They had a billion turnovers. Charlie Strong gets fired and, and everything. 
This time it's like, no, they have heard about it for so long that, yeah, I can do mm-hmm. that. But I will take over the at Oklahoma and at Baylor. I am going to take it at home because at least you do have past history of them being close. And, um, yeah, I'll, I'll take that one. So who do you want? There's at Oklahoma and at Baylor left. Uh, give me at Oklahoma. Okay. That would have been my pick I, in your shoes, though. Yeah. I just, they, they haven't played Baylor's well just Baylor. so good. Yeah. Really are. Yeah, exactly. Like, Exactly. All right. Well, Michael, I appreciate you doing that exercise with me. I appreciate you joining me here today on uh, Rock Truck Sports Talk, and uh, I'll see you next week over at uh, camp. Most definitely, my friend. Looking forward to it. Thanks again. All right. That's Michael Swain. Check out his work at fog.net, 24-7 sports. This is Rock Truck Sports Talk. Joined now by a very special guest. That would be one Brandon Schneider, the Big 12 Coach of the Year, KU Women's Basketball Coach here. Uh, I, I guess first things first, Coach, you win that Big 12 Coach of the Year. Did you you get a trophy or, or a plaque? Like, uh, Did you receive anything for that? Uh, no, no. Um, other than the gratification of uh, uh, a sense of real pride of what our team was able to accomplish you know, last year, um, I think everybody within the program – um, felt like we had a chance to have a special year. Um, nobody really outside of the program probably believed that. So um, it, it's always a great feeling to maybe prove the naysayers uh, wrong. Yeah, uh, that is. I I, I want to work on that. I want to get you a trophy for that. I think you deserve it. Uh, so <laughs> uh, the non-conference schedule has been released for you guys. We're still waiting on the conference portion of it, but uh, pretty challenging non-con schedule. You have three 2022 NCAA tournament teams on the slate with Arizona, Nebraska, UT Arlington. There's some other schools that maybe weren't tournament teams but really stick out, like the Texas A&Ms of the world and, and a few others. But uh, overall, what are kind of your thoughts on on this non-con schedule and, and what went into why you know certain matchups and, and certain teams and, and everything on the schedule? Yeah, well, it's it's a significant upgrade, no question. And um, that was really born of a discussion that we had with our team after the season. Um, you know, our players uh, ask a lot of questions about, um, you know, Coach, how, how do we improve our seed? Um, you know, what goes into that? And uh, we had a really open discussion, and I told them, hey, number one, uh, we got to win more Big 12 games. Um, you know, number two, we have to understand that if, if, if we're up 15 uh, with two minutes to play, we got to go in by 18 or 20. We can't let it drop down to nine. That's a significant part of the formula that's used in the net. And number three, we have to upgrade our non-conference schedule and prove to the NCAA tournament committee that we're willing to go play good people on the road. And, uh, you know, I think we've demonstrated that, um, you know, going to Arizona, going to Nebraska, having tournament teams come here, going on the road to play St. Mary's. Um, it's without question uh, the most challenging schedule that we've put together uh, in our time here at Kansas. And, um, you know, we felt like that's what our team wanted, and, and we feel like we have the kind of team that um, can, can perform at a, at a high level, um, you know, in, in the, that 11-game stretch. You mentioned the, the trip to Moraga for the – uh, tournament going on there. I'm curious, just from a, I guess outside of the the actual game itself, like who you're playing and everything, but just between some of the road trips you guys have with Moraga or Tucson, Lincoln, Nebraska, is there a road tilt you're maybe most excited for? Just in terms of the other stuff, whether it's just to see a, a cool or historic basketball venue, or, or for the weather, or or something outside of the game. Well, I think you know the three opponents you mentioned. Nebraska is a long time. Uh, you know, I would consider them a rival dating back to, you know, the old big eight days. Um, and then going to Arizona, they draw extremely well and um, are, are touted as one of the, the top programs in the country going into next year. And, you know, St. Mary's is a, a terrific team, really hard uh, to, to win at, at their place. Um, I'm excited about some of the things on that Thanksgiving trip that we'll get to do, you know, trip to Alcatraz, Fisherman's Wharf, you know, things of that nature that I think are all part of the the educational experience, you know, for student athletes and and the opportunity for for teams to uh, to bond. 
We're talking with Brandon Schneider here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Uh, you you guys have four players right now who are going to be competing in the the FIBA U20 European Championships. Is that something that that you feel like can can add to kind of the experience of of these players and in, in playing in the off season? Uh, like, what kind of ways can that help them uh, from an improvement level from one year to the next? Well, I think we we all understand the importance of an off season. Uh, whether it be strength training and conditioning, skill development. Uh, but, Derek, there's no substitute for playing, uh, whether that's getting up and down, playing in, in pickup games, um, obviously playing uh, in the European championships, the, the practice and preparation that goes into that, uh, and then the games themselves. Uh, that's invaluable um, experience and opportunities for, for our players uh, to get better and um, we're excited for them to have the opportunity to, to to represent their countries. And I think it's interesting with you guys. I mean, I don't know if this is something that, that gets talked about in, in coaching circles or, or that you guys feel or anything, but it almost seems like with, with as many really good players as you guys have brought in from overseas, like is that kind of – is that almost becoming like a kind of money ball, like efficiency type of thing where, um, you know, if, if there's all this focus on recruiting here, recruiting there, not that you guys don't have other players from, you know, in the States or in the local area or everything, but just that maybe there's some some extra value that you can find overseas that maybe uh, it's more of a, a an untapped area, an untapped potential in talent. Like, is that something that you guys have kind of felt in, in recruiting some of those overseas players? Yeah, no question, and, and you make a really good point. Um, you know, I've coached a lot of international players uh, through, throughout my career, even going back to Emporia State days, um, but, but they were rarely um, directly coming over. They were typically transfers or junior college players. Uh, but here at Kansas, you know, we have the resources to spend time there, um, to, to go to the different competitions. Uh, I think the the major difference is here in the States, if you're recruiting a really high caliber player, there's probably about 65 schools you got to beat out. Um, and, and what we found in Europe is our, our competition is usually six or seven. So, um, and, and we, we, we've got some things here at the university of Kansas that, that really give us some advantages uh, in recruiting international players uh, and then I think the the players who have come here have had a great experience, and it and it um, you know resonates uh, with with future international recruits coming over and being part of our program. Overall, eleven players back into the fold this year: Tyana Jackson, Holly Kierskeeter, Zakai Franklin, kind of headline that uh, along with a handful of others. Um, what have kind of been, I, I know you talked about there, like having conversations with your players about them wanting to get a higher seed and everything and what they need to do to accomplish that. In terms of the the on-the-court play, uh, from from when things ended for you guys coming off that the big NCAA tournament win and then fall into Stanford the next round, from where that was to where you are now, what has kind of been the expectations that you've set for the team and and for what they're looking to do to try to go even the step further into this next season. Yeah, I, I think our players um, are really poised to make a, make another significant jump. Um, you know, we were able to move in, obviously, the, the upper half of the conference. Um, you know, I think we were, we were a game and a half, two games out down the stretch um, from competing from a conference championship. So, you know, we've got our eyes on taking another big, big jump within the league uh would love to be in the mix to compete for a big 12 title uh and then if we're fortunate enough to have the kind of year that ends in an ncaa tournament bid you know what what do we have to do to to go deeper um you know it's uh it's great to win a game uh but i think uh once you get that taste and you start talking about you know moving beyond the first weekend and 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 looking at sweet 16s elite eights you know things of that nature um, those are the things that our players are talking about, um, you know, trying to accomplish. How much did that experience that you guys had playing up in Palo Alto, uh, I guess kind of, I, I don't know, like, I mean, always you're going to be motivated and everything, but did that kindle any more of a fire? Did that, that create any more of a, you know, desperation to, to want to improve and, and to kind of add to, to what they did last season? Oh, I, 
No question. No question. And I think it also was some affirmation that uh, we're not that far away. I mean, we played uh, three quarters of terrific basketball against the, the defending national champions and, and, quite frankly, a team that had a chance to win back-to-back national titles. And, um, you know, they, they had a player have a career night, um, and they had a terrific fourth quarter, and that was the difference in the game. So for 30 minutes, um, our players, I think, um, you know, learned that they can play with anybody in the country if they play the right way, if they believe in one another, uh, and they continue to get better. And I think that has been a real driving force in, in their motivation um, in, with, with the development that's gone on since then. With Holly, she's been so good for you all and, and now enters yet another year as a veteran, more experienced player. So in what ways are you kind of challenging her to, to reach that even higher level? I think it's uh, she's at the phase in her career, Derek, where it's um, what am I doing to make those around me better? Uh, I've proven that I'm an all-Big 12 performer. Um, I've proven that I'm a two-way player. Um, I, I'm a really good defender. I, I can score it at every level. Uh, but now what, what am I doing to make sure that, that I'm making Tyana Jackson better and Ioana Hatsileonti better and Chandler Prater better? Uh, I think that's the next phase in her development. How much did the addition of, of Tyana Jackson really solidify things defensively for you? Like, How much does that really help in, in just having that one player in the middle who can kind of erase things if there's anybody that gets by or, or something? And what are kind of your expectations for her growing into another year? I mean, she was a program changer. Um, you know, I don't know that uh, – and I, and I think not only is she a program changer – She's a, a, a game changer in terms of whether or not she's in the game. I think if you went back and looked at uh, the level that we played at when she was in the game versus maybe on the bench in foul trouble, it's significantly different. Um, you know, we have to uh, play her as many minutes as possible. Um, I think that she is one of the top defenders in the country and, and could be someone who's uh, name is talked about as, as a defensive player of the year candidate uh, if she plays minutes and has the opportunity to to put up the kind of numbers that, that we know she can. I mean, she blocked 95 shots, broke a 30-year-old record, um, and is without question the anchor of our defense. And, um, you know, we made some major phys- philosophical adjustments uh, knowing that, that she's back there uh, defending the paint for us. Yeah, does that change at all heading into this season? Because obviously last year, I, I believe she was coming in from the JUCO level to where you might think you have something there. But now that you fully know and well what you saw last year, does that, like you said, kind of add anything to, to defensive schemes or, or anything that you're trying to do now with a full off season in front of you? Well, I think that's more the players um, getting an understanding of, of the kind of trust uh, that they have in, in Tiana, uh, that she's got their back. And um, so that if we're trying to send the ball a certain way, they know that we're trying to send it to twin. And um, that, that she's going to be a presence back there that's going to give whoever that player is a moment of pause uh, as they try to finish around the basket. Um, and, and she's just been terrific in the offseason, you know, trying to add more uh, to her offensive skill set. I think that's an area – uh, that is really going to su- surprise some people just in how much she's improved um, in the, on the offensive side of things here in, over, the, over the last few months. The last thing I got for you, uh, the Big 12 tournament came back to Kansas City last year. It's going to be in Kansas City this next year and uh, for the, uh, I guess, near future here. Uh, what is uh, kind of the advantages to that? Do you like it being in Kansas City as opposed to you know, some of the, the other places that it's been in the past? Uh, and what are some of the things that you think make uh, that a viable option? Well, I, I, that's absolutely where I think it should be. Um, you know, it's, I think it's great for us uh, with, with the proximity, obviously, to Lawrence and to our fan base, um, but, but also having it uh, in conjunction uh, with, with what I think is the best men's basketball conference tournament in the country, just the vibe and the atmosphere um, in the power and light district down there, you know, by T-Mobile and, and Municipal, I think really uh, 
gives a, a lot of credit to what basketball means in this part of the country. He is Brandon Schneider, the Big 12 Women's Basketball Coach of the Year, KU Women's Basketball Head Coach. Brandon, I appreciate taking some time out of your offseason here and, and talking to me, and, and good luck on the upcoming season here in a few months. You bet. Thanks, Derek. Appreciate you having me. That was Brandon Schneider joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Nice catching up with him. I'm excited to see what it looks like this year for the women's basketball team. I mean, you're talking about uh, you look at these early top 25 rankings and, and they're popping up on on like every one that I've seen. And obviously a team who was, you know, won an NCAA tournament game brings pretty much everyone back, uh, a majority of the players and, and certainly a lot of your stars. I've been very big on on the impact Tyana John or Jackson that you know you could argue Holly Kerskeeter is the best player on the team. You could argue Tyana Jackson is the most valuable player on the team, and that's not even taken away from all these other players, right? You think of so many other players that have uh, fit into certain roles or made big impacts for for the KU women's team last year and and should this year as well. But I, I think the ceiling's even higher than that. I think the ceiling's higher than. You know, you see them ranked maybe 20th or 21st. I think this could be a top 15 team, right? It's going to take a good amount of health and uh, some progression from players you're kind of counting on and everything. But there's no reason this team couldn't be one of the best teams in the Big 12 this year. And uh, I'm excited to see what they can do. Should be a fun year in Allen Fieldhouse. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017-1320-KLWN. Depend Depending on it. Welcome back into Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on KLWN, KLWN.com, the KLWN app, or later in the best of RCST podcast. How about Brady Singer last night? Continues to really pitch well for the Royals ever since he got sent down, seemed to change some things up, some of the the pitch mix and the repertoire and just fine-tuning certain things. And, and you give a lot of credit to the Royals' minor league kind of pitching staff, at least in uh, Omaha, because certainly – the Royals have been kind of devoid of of the pitching development at the major leagues, but uh, nonetheless, since he's come up, he's been a new pitcher, and we actually had the conversation. We actually, one of the questions, I think it was the first question I asked David Lesky from Inside the Crown earlier this week, and we'll talk to him again on Monday, is Brady Singer just good now? And he wasn't sure. He said, eh, he might be, I don't know. I think if I ask that question again, and, and I will on Monday, He's going to have no choice but to be like, yeah, I think he is good now. He goes out there last night and seven innings of one hit ball to begin with. That's already a great start. But then add in the extra notion that it's against the Yankees in New York Stadium, one of the best teams in the majors, one of the best offenses in the majors in a hitter's ballpark. One hit ball through seven innings. You have 10 strikeouts to one walk. No runs allowed by Brady Singer. Unbelievable performance by him against the Yankees. And in baseball, it's a long season. It's harder to do this each and every game and be like, wow, what a great game. That means everything moving forward. It doesn't. But it has been a strong string of play for Brady Singer that this isn't just the one start. But when you have a strong string of play and then you have a highlight game to go with it, then it really starts to mean something. Then it starts to kind of reside with you that maybe something's different here. Maybe this guy is kind of turning the the corner. By the way, it is very Royals, though, that he did all that and you still lost one nothing. Aaron Judge hits a walk-off home run in the bottom of the ninth to to give the Yankees the one nothing win. But we're kind of at the point anyway where like the record is what it is for the Royals. It's almost like who really cares if they win or lose. I mean, obviously, winning does lead to momentum and, and winning like if if everybody is is churning if if the wheels are turning and everything is clicking for this team and there are more players producing at a high level that in theory should lead to more wins so you do want to win because that's probably a product of a lot more players playing well and a lot of the young players playing well which is obviously a good sign for the future but just like in a vacuum if I told you that the Royals would lose every game the rest of the season, but that the young players, uh, like you'd see starts like this from Brady Singer, you'd see Bobby Witt and MJ Melendez and some of the young guys, like whether it's Nick Prado or Vinny Pascantino, whoever, show a bunch of big flashes in games like this, I think you would take that because at this point in the season – it's not like the Royals are competing to, to make the playoffs. It's about what can you do to build on for 2023, for 2024, for 2025. And that is the importance of what we saw from 
Brady Singer last night because if he continues on this run, I mean, this is the last the last month of of appearances for Brady Singer. He has five starts. He's gone thirty and two thirds of an innings pitched. He has a two point oh five ERA, one point one one WHIP, and a twelve point three K per nine. He's kind of kind of finally emerging as one of these young pitchers. We haven't seen that from other Royals pitchers. So just to begin with, if you're to start with the idea that okay, we know he can be part of the future rotation. Wherever he's slotted, we feel confident with where he is. But if he takes that a step further and he looks like the guy he did last night and continues on, I mean, then all of a sudden you're, you're talking about a top-of-the-rotation pitcher. And just having someone in there that you can slot near the top, it really helps you figure out the rest of your rotation with other free agent signings, with young pitchers that are still kind of in the process of, of figuring it out at the major league levels. That's so important for having that. And... That's kind of what he's showing right now, that he could be, you know, maybe your your best starting pitcher or something like that as soon as next season. And maybe he is at the moment. Now, we've seen nice stretches from Carlos Hernandez, Chris Bubich, Daniel Lynch, you know, all the likes of these other starters before that haven't always turned into long-term success. So let's see if Brady Singer can do it through the end of the season and not have it quickly turned. But it's a nice step to see, and maybe this is the start of Singer being the Royals' top arm to allow those other guys to kind of slot behind and, and make things easier on you to build that rotation in 2023 and beyond. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You're listening on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, depending on it.